So, I was going to talk about ethics, and then it sounded to me like Stephen had been giving you a little of a hard time. <laughs> so I thought I would do something else, a little more light-hearted, <laughs> and we'll get uh, the ethics tomorrow. <laughs> so tonight, at the last minute, I decided to change. I thought what I'll do is uh, ten, it's talking about the ten oxerding pictures. And this is a, a series of pictures you find in the Zen tradition. And in a way, it shows the path, is a meditative path in pictures. And so you have these ten pictures, and it's really, you know, in the old time, the way it was created was that somebody did the pictures, and then somebody wrote little poems, and then everybody wrote commentary to the poems. And then, but here I'll just kind of tell you the title of each picture, and then you know, we'll look at it from a more modern point of view. What does it mean for us at the end of this retreat? What does it mean for us about our, the path in general in our life? So it's, it's a story. It's ten pictures, so there is a story. And the story is between a little ox herder. I am sorry, generally he's kind of could say male, but it could be female too, as little pigtail. And he's looking for an ox, a cow, a bull, again a different translation, but he's looking for an animal. And he's lost it. So you have the first picture which is called Searching for the Ox. And so you have a picture, actually, of nature. You have nature, and then you have the little oxerder looking, looking, hearing sound here, hearing sound there. What's that? Is it the ox? So it's kind of like very kind of looking, searching for something. And that's what it's called, searching for the ox. And I think this is like us. Before we start the path, before we start the meditation, and we feel something is missing, we're kind of trying to look beyond our limits, beyond what we know. Or there might be some tension, there might be some suffering, so we're looking for some ease. So in a way, we flit here and there. We kind of maybe try, maybe it's, we'll... That's something we're looking for, could be something material, maybe emotional, maybe something outside of ourselves. And so it's kind of looking for something, thinking, ah, there is something somewhere. And one of my hero, heroine, I should say, is this nun who is now uh, dead. She, she deceased, passed away some years ago. And she was a Swiss lady who came from a very good cultured Swiss family, so very uh, cultivated, musical family. Of, her father was very famous, conductor. And then, age 55, she dropped everything and she went to Dharamsala to study under the Dalai Lama and then she became a nun. And she practiced, and she came back to Switzerland as a nun, and she practiced. And we became very good friends. She was a very good friend of Stephen. And so we used to go and uh, teach some time at her place and things like that. And then one day, age 75, she came to us and said, ah, I want to ask you something. So we thought, well, what's the matter? She said, I, st I think there is more to my life, and I like to stop being a nun. What do you think? And it was, and we had such a traditional reaction. Later on, I thought, come on. The two of us said, oh, it would be such a pity. <laughs> such a pity. You are such a wonderful nun, such a wonderful example. But she 
very good. She did not listen to our advice. <laughs> and she stopped being a nun. It did not make a great difference. But to me, I thought, this is wonderful. You know, somebody who changed her life at age 55, and then age 75, decide to change it again in a certain way. Opening up, looking for something, trying things out. Then you have the next picture. And the next picture, it's called Seeing the Footprints. So you have the little ox herder, and suddenly he sees footprints. Looks like, you know, footprint of an ox, not footprint of an elephant or a giraffe. It looks like what he's looking for. And so, in a way, this, to me, is when we start to find traces, traces of things spiritual. You might read books, you might kind of, you know, read poetry. I know for myself, when I became interested in spiritual things, when I was 18 and dropped politics and things like that, it was poetry. I would like, I would hear, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. Ah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> or I would hear my favorite poem, the swallows fly through the sky, they leave no traces. The shadows of the bamboo sweep the steps. No dust is stirred. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and um, so you see, we, we kind of, there is something. We hear something, and think, mm, yeah. We kind of attracted. There is something for us there. And in a way, I think there, there is a little of a question. For the oxerder first, are the footprint old or new? I mean, was the ox passing 10 years ago? Or did the ox pass yesterday? And also, in a way, the traces we find, the spiritual traces, are they relevant or not? Can we apply them or not? And to me, at that time, when I was uh, 19 and I really became interested in spirituality, and in those days, in 75, you did not have much, 72, 73, there was not much like nowadays. It's, uh, there is lots. Then it was like you were looking for something. And I found, in those days, one of the big, big teachers in those days, and there was lots of books, was Krishnamurti. And Krishnamurti was all about awareness. You just had to be aware. So I got his books, and I wanted to do it. You know, I thought, why not? So I took the book, I took a blanket, I was in the Alps, and I went for three days fasting. Then I would not have to worry about food, and I just went up the mountain. And I would do what the book said. So I walk up the mountain, I, I found the perfect meadows and beautiful flowers, and there was beautiful views. Put my blanket, I sat on my blanket, read a little of the book, and then was aware. Read a little more of the book, was aware. I lasted a day and a half. And nothing was happening. You know, it did not work. So obviously there were traces, but I could not make sense of them, or I could not apply them, or it did not work for me. Or possibly I did not wait very long. That also could be the thing. So I dropped it. I let go of that. Which brings me, in a way, to the third picture. And the third picture is lovely. Because the third picture, you have the oxerder, and then there is bushes, and he sees the bottom, <laughs> the oxtail. It is what it's called, seeing the oxtail. He just sees the flicking of the tail of the ox. So finally, he sees something. I mean, it's a bit flickering, you know, coming and going. And to me, this picture is when we try to go beyond words. We try to practice. And then we encounter different paths. We encounter different methods. 
And then again, we have to notice at that stage, does it fit me? Is it inspiring? Is it meaningful for me? Is it beneficial? And I remember for myself, at that time, I was in London, and I tried everything that was around at that time. I tried the Guru Maharaji sitting on his throne up there, which I did not think was, it was a bit too far for me. Then I tried some Sufi things, but again, did not really work for me. Then I tried my best one was hyperventilating naked. <laughs> so I would work all day in the post office. Then, you know, seven o'clock, I would go to this hyperventilation naked class. And I did this for a week. But I must say, I was not convinced. <laughs> so at the end of the week of the class, I said, do you want to do, you know, there is a next, more advanced week. <laughs> I said, no, thank you. <laughs> then I also tried, um, and that was another interesting one, Taoism by correspondence. <laughs> so I would get little letter telling me, you know, things to do. And so I tried this for a few months. And the main exercise was I was to lie down on a bed and I was to, to bring my spirit or my soul or whatever <laughs> to the corner of the ceiling, looking down on me. I tried for a few months. did not work. I really was not, it was not the path for me, obviously. So in a way, and even if we meet... Buddhism, even if we meet Buddhism, again, it's one tradition, but there are many paths. And I know for when I started out, first I met uh, Tibetan, because in London at the time, this was in uh, 73, 4, 5, you had the, the Karmapa, and he would come, the old one, not the new one, and he would come and do the black hat ceremony. So I went to that, of course. I mean, this was a big spiritual thing at the time. You know, you all went to, and he put his hat on. I gave him a little pebble as a dana. I mean, in those days, I was not so sure about giving and generosity and this thing like that. But I must say it was nice, and it looks nice, but I did not connect with it, obviously. Then I traveled. I traveled, and I ended up in Thailand. And the people, again, were very nice. But being a little feminist, I had problem. Because I was there in this uh, very nice uh, center, What's One Mark. But as a woman, in order to go and visit the monk, I had actually, it was very complicated to go and visit the, we the only Western monk. Being a nun, a woman, I could not go on my own. I could not go with a layman, Justin Menmi, that would be no good. I could not go with another lady, that would be no good either. I could only go to see him with two laywomen and one layman, and then it was safe. I thought, poor fellow, you know. <laughs> uh, so I decided, no, 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 this is not for me, even though if the teaching was interesting. And finally, I ended up with Zen. But again, I was, I think, quite lucky because I was intending to go to Taiwan and with a mistake in a plane ticket, I ended up in Korea on my way to Japan. And later, after having stayed in Korea, I realized Korea was the only place I could have practiced Zen. I could have never survived in Japan. It was way, way, way too disciplined for me, too rigorous. And in, Ch and in China, in Taiwan, it would have been way, way, way too formal. And so by, I would say, lucky happenstance, I happened to end up in Korea to kind of find the place which, in a way, I could fit in. It could work. So I think we have to be careful because often we're looking for the best way, or the best teacher, or the most direct, or the most complete, or the... But it might not necessarily fit you. 
You could have the best teacher in the world, best tradition in the world, and it might not correspond to you. It might not fit you. I saw that in Korea because often people think, you know, if only they had the right, most wonderful teacher, then it would work. But I, I saw with my teacher, Master Cousin was a wonderful person. He was a great teacher. But I could see that with some people, he had no effect whatsoever, but really no effect. Because you would think, well, he's awakened. He should have effect on everybody. Not at all. I can remember once this Australian coming, and I translated for him and everything, and then he said, what do you see in this guy? He's really... Pfft. Not interesting. <laughs> well, each to his own. You know? So in a way to see when we're looking for something, to actually really, I think it's important to see, does it fit? Is it meaningful? Can I understand it? Can I apply it? And this leads me to the next picture, which is called Catching the Ox. So finally, with a rope, the oxherd has caught the ox. Finally, he's got it. But the ox doesn't want to be caught. So it's kind of really fighting. And this actually, I think, is one of the most powerful pictures of the whole series. When finally you, he's got it. He's, he's holding on to it, but it's really difficult. And this, I think, is when we really decide to do it. We're not just kind of saying, ah... The great way is not difficult if I don't pick and choose. But we finally get down to really doing it, doing it for ourselves. And then we realize that dreaming about spirituality is not the same as doing it, especially with meditation, especially with Zen meditation. And maybe that's what you experience during the week. That the idea of the retreat is wonderful, but the doing of it, Day in, day out, the pain in the knee, and, you know, little tiredness, little sleepiness. Oh, of course, we have also good moments. And in a way, it's when we really get involved, we really try to do it. Then at the beginning, it's a real struggle. It's a real struggle of the body, of the mind, of really doing it. Because now we really, in a way, the meditation is not just an abstract idea. The meditation is really working with the whole organism. It's an organic process that nobody can do for us. I cannot do for you, you cannot do for me. And that's why in a way, at the beginning it's so difficult. We have all these patterns, all these habits that we have to work with, that we're kind of going a little against in a different direction. And so in a way it's kind of really at that and that picture for me is a great picture of determination, of really holding on and not being discouraged, of really trying, even if sometimes it seems so difficult. And my teacher, Master Cousin, used to say, with practice, sometimes it is as easy as pushing a boat on ice. It just goes very easily. And he said, sometimes... It is as difficult as dragging a cow to drink at the well and she doesn't want to go. So you kind of, oh, oh. It's kind of like really, you feel this kind of resistance. And I, so in a way, that's what this picture is about. Then there is standing the ox. And so this picture, finally the ox has come down a bit. So the ox herder is kind of holding the rope, which is around still the, the neck of the ox, but very loosely. So it's kind of really loose, very loose. And this is when we become familiar with the practice, familiar with the, the meditation. And this is to me when I, in a way, I had this experience. I was in Korea as a nun, and I'd been there for a, a few years. And during the free season, I used to go and see great masters and great mistresses and generally try to get some advice and some great teaching, etc. And so I, there was one master I used to go regularly, Master Kyobong, Kyongbong. 
So I walk, take the bus, walk. Finally, I get there. And he's there. I bow. Master, master, how can I make the question vivid? What can I do? And he just sits there. So two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. Master, master, some advice. And he just sits there. And finally he says, you know already. And that was that. Three words. So I get out and I think, you know, it's a little short. Huh? <laughs> I came all this way and three words. You know already. And then I thought, this is true. I know already what I have to do. And I would say most of the time, we know already what you have, we have to do. And the only thing we need to do is to do it. Because often we think, oh, if only I had really a good advice or a good this or good that. But most of the time we know what to do. And it's just, in a way, doing it. Just doing it. Having the great courage to do it ourselves. So in a way, that picture also is of no struggle. There is just, we just, it's not, we're not struggling with the body, we're not struggling with the mind anymore. And it's just kind of, we're just applying ourselves. There is this steadiness, we're just applying ourselves. But still, he's still holding the rope because we need to keep an eye. We need to keep vigilant. vigilant. Although it seems a little easier, we can still have difficult times. So I think, in a way, that's what happened when we do meditation and it was really tough, and then finally it gets a little easier. Once there was, uh, when we were in the old guy house, there was this uh, man who used to come every year to our retreat. And then at the beginning, for the first two, three years, every time it was the body. He had such problem with the body. He was just fighting with his body. And then on the fourth year he came, and he seemed much better. I said, how is it going? He said, ah, oh, the body, no problem. I can see it, wonderful. But the mind, the mind, it's all over the place. So in a way, something starts to work better. And then we might have you know, something else which might be a little difficult. I know for myself, when I was in Korea, I did you know, many retreats this because we used to sit three months in winter and in summer and then three months would be free. And so I did a few of those. And then I went to this nunnery where I really practiced hard and I heard there were some really good practitioners, so I went there and I really practiced hard, you know, like uh, 16 hours a day. I would get up earlier, I would sit later, and yes, I would do it, I would question. And it did not work whatsoever. For two weeks, nothing. I would do my 16 hours a day. What is this? What is this? And it was sore, and I was sleepy, and it really did not work for two weeks. But I, I mean, it was in the middle of the retreat. I was not supposed to go anywhere else, so I just kept at it. There was nothing else to do, even if it really did not work. And then after two weeks, we listened, we listened to the tape of a great master, and he said something, and it suddenly resonated within me. And then the question just went by itself. So in a way, to have in a way the patience, to have the vigilance, to even if it's difficult, if we keep at it, then something can release again, and we can continue. And then there is a sixth picture, which is called riding the ox back home. So there's a little ox herder. He's sitting on the ox, no rope, and he's playing the flute. And I love this picture because it's a picture of playfulness, of kind of creativity. And I think it shows us that the path, the spiritual path, is not just serious, just dour, just, you know, it's also, to me, one effect of it is of becoming lighter. 
kind of in a whole body and mind complex, that we become lighter within ourselves. There is this lightness. There is this spaciousness within us. So there is, in a way, it's an image of ease, lightness, freedom, creativity and joy. Also fluidity. In a way, now there's no need of the rope. And the oxider can sit on the ox because the ox knows the way. You know what to do. And I think then, finally, we're not anymore into the effect. We just do the meditation for its own sake. And there is kind of like a flow to the meditation. I remember once we were in Korea, and time to time, because we were the only Westerners in this temple, uh, the various people from the embassy used to come and have a little look at us. You know, they were a little special, so they wanted to see how we are doing. And it was a little strange what we were doing. And so they used to come, and we used to have little chats. And once I remember the, this person from the embassy, and we were about five of us, Westerners, and he asked her, but what do you do? We said, well, you know, you see, 10 hours a day, three months of the year, twice a year, da-da-da-da. And then he looked at us, and he said, but why do you do this? And we kind of looked at each other. Why do we do this? <laughs> <laughs> and we, I had to kind of say it, just to do it. Just to do it. And to me, they come a point, and I think this is very important in the meditation, where we just do the meditation for its own sake. And finally, we let go of the measuring mind, of the effect, and just sit for the sake of sitting with really no expectation. We just do it. And it's just as it is. Sometimes it's clear and quiet, sometimes it's sleepy, sometimes it has thought, but you just do it. And to me, this picture is very much about that. Then there is a next picture, number seven, and it's called Forgetting the Ox, the person rests alone. So all this hard work to find the ox and now no need of it anymore. And then you have this little heart and the little person gazing at the moon. And to me, this picture is very much about, in a way, what you're going to go back to tomorrow, which is no separation between meditation and daily life. Because I think often there is this kind of tendency to see, oh, this is special, oh, this is spiritual. But I think here, it's really seeing there is no difference between meditation and daily life, between spirituality and not spirituality. And it's kind of like trying to see that the meditation is not special. As I said at the beginning, it's just food for the spirit. And in a way, I would say it's a little like brushing our teeth. Every morning, possibly every evening, you brush your teeth. And generally, what do you do? This was such a great brushing of teeth. Ma, I must tell everybody about it. This is, you know, the great way of brushing teeth. Everybody must do this now. No. You brush the teeth. Feels a little better. Now I go for my day. And I think in a way meditation is like that. And I think we have to be careful in daily life. The thing we have to be careful in daily life is you go back to your home and then you sit in meditation and you want the meditation to be just like here. And I can guarantee you it won't be just like here. Because here the conditions are very different. They are very you in silence, there is a schedule, etc., etc. So it's kind of more in the depth of the practice. When you go back to daily life, it's more the width of the practice. And so when you sit in meditation at home, generally I would say, the first two, three minutes are very good. You see? Ah, oh, yes, yes, I know this. The posture, the breath, the question, listening, yeah. And within three minutes, you are yesterday, you are tomorrow, and 
off you go. You might have possibly experienced this a little today, trying to be here, question or breath or listening and seeing the mind, trying to be, maybe you were a little half tomorrow, you know, seeing the mind. You know, it's very important to see that we're not trying to, 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 to develop, to create a permanent state of meditation, but more a way to, to be aware, a way to be stable and open in the moment. So at that level, it is not so special. But still, of course, it is something we can cultivate. It is something that is beneficial. So in a way, this picture, I think, is about, in a way, when it seems to me the meditation becomes more natural. It's not something you do specially, an exotic activity, but it's more something that you do either when you sit, but also something you do when you listen to people, when you talk to people, when you play with your children, when you work, when you are in the tube. And it's not something kind of, you know, exotic. It's just kind of the way you are, present, aware, engaged in that moment. Then there is the next one, and there, the title, the ox and the oxerder are both forgotten. So all this work, and now you just have one of these Zen circles, and they, it's all gone. And in a way, first it's not literally that will become a circle, but in a way it's kind of just trying to express a little kind of show uh, a stage which we might experience, which is a stage of emptiness, a stage of dissolution. Sometimes you could nearly say a stage of oneness. And then this is when we start to let go of the grip. We start to let go of the grasping. And then it's not that we kind of fall into this mystical void, but it's more that there is a dissolution of this I, me, mine. Because often we have this very strong sense of like inside ourselves, there is this cube saying, Martin. And then everything I experience goes and gets stuck onto it. But I think at that stage, we realize there is no cube. And there is nothing that can stick onto it. It's just this flow of condition, this kind of encountering this creative engagement. And so in a way, it's when we kind of see that we cannot reduce ourselves, define ourselves by just one condition. To me, this is, in a way, the, the beginning of some freedom, of some experience of spaciousness. When we stop, because why is it so painful sometimes? Because we reduce ourselves to a feeling, to a situation, and we say, I am just that. I am just that thought. I am just that situation. My whole life is just that. But it is not so. So in that stage, we really know organically that we are more, we experience ourselves in a more multi-perspectival way. We see that we are more than any one of the conditions that forms us. And so in a way, we're more flowing with our condition. That's where the idea of the circle, something that flows, something that moves. But then there is still a picture. And this is called returning to the original place. And why? Why is that? Why, why is normally one often there is this idea, the, the, the goal is this emptiness, is this degrasping. But I think we have to see this is just a stage, this is just kind of a, a part of the path. But this is not the end of the path. When I was in Korea, once there were these three monks who decided to really practice really, really hard. So, of course, they went to a hermitage, as you do there, and they were practicing day and night, the three of them. Three brothers in the Dharma. Yeah, off we go. And in the middle of this uh, very uh, diligent retreat, one of them had this amazing experience of emptiness. 
And he thought, this is it. I am awakened. So he rushed down to the monastery about an hour away, went to Master Cousin, said, Master Cousin, I am awakened. Everything is empty. So Master Cousin take his stick, hit him, and he's out. You see, not everything is empty. <laughs> so, and he told him, you know, it's a good experience, but you still have to continue to practice. But he was not convinced. He thought this was so amazing. So he goes to the next master. And the next master do exactly the same thing. Still not convinced. So he goes to the next one. And the next one does exactly the same thing. And so finally he said, okay, then maybe they have a point. <laughs> so in a way, these experiences, of course, when we sit in meditation, we can experience what I would call meditative state, mystical experience, or insight. And this, in a way, is interesting insofar as it helps us to experience ourselves so differently. Because generally we have such a small definition. I am like this. We're very fixing. When we experience ourselves so differently, we can see, ah, I am not so fixed. I am not so solid. I'm not just like that. At the same time, these experiences are impermanent. So in a way, you, when you experience it by contrast, of course it's amazing. It lasts a few seconds, a few days, it depends. But generally, it passes. And so in a way, to be careful to see that you can have, yes, of course, other experiences. But you cannot not have the same experiences and feeling about it the same way. Again, back to the contrast. And also, the thing with the experiences is that they might not necessarily dissolve the habits. This is, in a way, they, I mean, they might break them a little, they might kind of de-intensify a little, but they might not necessarily really do away with them. That's why, in a way, you have the next two pictures. So the ninth one is returning to the original place. And that generally is a picture of some bamboo or some plum blossom or cherry blossom, so something of nature. And so to see that there is a stage further from emptiness, there is this interconnection, interdependence, to see that there is no separation between the world, between our life, between ourselves. And so in a way, Master Cousin used to say that, you know, everything could teach us. Often we have this feeling, again, back to this, often people ask me, you know, I, I dream of this teacher. Do you think I need a teacher? Of course, I mean, I would say if you find a great teacher, yes. If on top of it you, can, you are able to meet him, wonderful, you know, because generally there is a huge queue to meet the special teacher, you know. Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, I mean, they have thousands of people queuing to see them. So it's not easy, in a way, to meet great teacher. And in a way to see, I was very touched every time he said that. Like he would say, he would talk, he would give one of his talk. And then he would say, listen, listen to the bird. Here, listen to the rooks. They are delivering a great Dharma discourse. You know, and this is that. You know, everything we can learn from everything. And he used to tell the story of this orchid. He said, in the mountain, there is this orchid. It's wonderful. It's an amazing orchid. And it has an amazing smell. Amazing fragrance, which spread for miles. And he would say, look, that orchid, it does not matter to it that anybody can smell it or not. It will just spread the fragrance regardless of somebody there or not. It's just in its nature to just spread this fragrance for everybody or nobody. Then you have the last picture and this is called appearing in the marketplace with gift. And there, suddenly, you have a big man 
with raggedy shoes and a little bag in his back and the little oxoda reappearing and the little kind of houses. And in a way, this show that the, the, the aim, I mean, the, the meditation, the path, is to go back into the world with compassion, with wisdom and compassion. Why do we do what we do? Of course it's for ourselves, but it's for ourselves and others. It's something that, in a way, what you've do, done during this week is, I would say, to train your muscle of wisdom and compassion. But now the job is to go back into the world and to really apply them. And it's, in a way, it's only when applying them really day to day that then you can really, kind of in a way, the, the, just doing it. It's not just here. It's you in interaction. It's in whatever happens. And then the more you do it, the more it will be there. But it's something we have to cultivate. So, of course, when we do meditation, there can be this effect of development of wisdom and compassion, but it's also something we cultivate. And to me, this is something very important to remember in our life, that basis, the value which grounds our life. Like for myself, the value of wisdom and compassion. And so it doesn't so much matter what I do, because often people think, but what is the meaning of my life? What, what is a thing I must do? in my life. I say, it doesn't matter. I don't know what is the meaning of my life. I'm just alive. I was born. I'm breathing. What is my task in life? No idea. I don't think there is one. But I can. My life can be grounded on wisdom and compassion, but not as abstract idea, but just as really something I can apply, I can cultivate, I can practice. And this is why, in a way, in the picture, the, the raggedy monk has got the, the bag on his shoulder. It's a bag of goodies that he's going to distribute, to give to people. And why the raggedy shoes is, again, this idea of adaptability, not kind of picking and choosing, but really to adapt to whoever comes around, to high, to low, to try to creatively engage with whoever, whoever one might encounter. So in a way, it's kind of this compassion. It's really this creative, wise compassion to see what is it that is appropriate. And to me, this is one of the things about listening, us cultivating listening, is actually so that the compassion can be wiser and to listen and to see what is it the person wants? What is it the person needs? And can I give it? Because I think one has to be careful with compassion. Of course, we have the feeling for the suffering of others. But then, is it skillful? Is it appropriate? Can I give what they want? When I was in Korea as a nun, I used to appear time to time in the newspaper, magazine, or TV. And whenever this would happen, I would get letters. I would get letters to the uh, French Buddhist nun in Songwangsa. And all, every time, it was a young person, 20, 18, who were asking me for money. And, you know, and generally I would send them about, you know, five pounds and saying, that's all I have. I can't give you anything else. You have to find another way to get money. And so I fell for them, but there was nothing I could do about them being poor. There was nothing I could do, nothing I could do. However, I could care for them. So in a way, to see that sometimes we can do something, it's within our possibility, and sometimes we cannot. Sometimes we have to be active, Sometimes we might just have to sit there. When we used to live in Totnes, there was a, a woman who was dying of cancer, and she wanted Stephen and I to just help her a little. And she said, you know, can we just do meditation together? So she did not want us to, to tell her about 
you know, impermanence or whatnot. She just wanted us to sit with her. So we would go once a week and we would just chat a little and then we would sit together for 20 minutes. And that's all she wanted. She did not want anything else. So in a way, when we go back to our life to see in what way can we be creative, can we be wise, can we be compassionate? So. Oh, and one thing about the, that I need to mention at the end, about the pictures, about the ten pictures, the ten Oxodium picture is to see that it is not linear. It's not I start picture one, and do, 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 I get to picture ten. But it's more like a spiral. And actually, you might cultivate different pictures at different times. And you might find yourself at the same place, even if it's a little higher. You know, you might have been practicing for 10 years, and you might find yourself back at the four, when there is, you know, it's a struggle. Or you might find yourself at looking for something. So to see, it's not linear, but it's kind of just different stages. We can consider different aspects of the practice we can consider. So are there any questions or comments? Personally, I make the difference between what I would call formal practice. And so in formal practice, you sit, for example, and you do, what is this? What is this? If that's what you choose to do. But personally, I think doing what is this or any other practice, if you do concentration and inquiry together, then it makes us develop what I would call creative awareness. And then in informal practice, I would say what we activate is creative awareness. So it's more, it's not so much the fact, you know, that I am at the asking for a latte and watch the breath or ask the question, but more is that in that encounter with the thing itself, with the person, with myself, I bring creative awareness. Am I stable and open? Often is also coming, as you said, to your body. Am I, am, I, am I impatient? Am I kind of, I want my latte <laughs> yesterday? You know, how do we encounter the person, the thing, myself? So it's kind of, often that's what they say in the Zen tradition about kind of these, these, three, these three things, the person itself, the object, and the, the, the other person. And to kind of, kind of look at the three different places you know, when there is this contact with myself, with the object, with the person, can I bring this creative engagement? Can I bring this creative awareness? Can I bring this stability and openness? So to me, that would be the, what I call informal practice. And then, of course, there are times in the day where you can have a pause. Nothing happened for a minute or two. And then instead of thinking nothing is happening and, you know, you go for the phone or the cup of tea or whatever, to just, ah, I can meditate. And then you might go back to the breath or the question or the sound, whatever seems to be appropriate at that moment. That's great. Is there something you can read about? Are you talking about three, like an object and something else? Uh, that, sort of that's, that's a little technique. I mean, even I... I, I even I forgot. I used to know this stuff so well when I was in Korea. <laughs> now it's kind of like I know it, but I don't know the, the the word for it anymore. I think if you read any any Zen stuff of a certain nature, I would have to look it up. I mean, if you really want me to know about this and find your text about it specifically, then you, you would have to give me your email, and then I can find it because it's kind of a little technical thing. 
And generally, for technical things, I ask Steve. <laughs> because he has a better memory than me. Yes. Oof, oof, my family, uh, my family is, uh, we, are, uh, we are kind of what I would call cultural Catholic, cultural Christian. Because in, in France, you, pff, the, the, the real Christian are only like maybe 7%, and then everybody else is a cultural Christian. So you generally go to church three times in your lifetime, when you're born, uh, when you marry, and when you die. And recently, and my mother, you know, recently we've been to a lot of funerals in our village, and so we go, and we go to the church. And what was interesting is that at the end of it, my mother and I came to the same conclusion, that if my mother died, yes, we would have to do the ceremony in the church, even though she doesn't believe in God, and she hates those ceremonies. <laughs> she really, my mother is really atheist. She really, and she's kind of against religion. She thinks they're bad for you. <laughs> and she thinks because she's a humanist and she thinks that, you know, there is too many wars because of religion, etc. So yes, I no way I could become Catholic. That would not have uh, entered the picture. You know, there is all this, uh, in, in our kind of family, when there is this socialist background, you really have... Uh, Catholicism as a... Christianity has a very bad press. It's only after I became... A, uh, a, a Buddhist nun that actually I became more friendly and I now I have very good friends who are Christian and Catholic and I met very impressive people of that and now I, I am very uh, open to it but uh, in those days there would be no way I would even uh, go near it uh, why, why Buddhism? I think it was because again happenstance I happened to, to read some a friend of mine was interested in meditation and he had some Zen texts. And I read them and I thought, hmm, that's not bad. And then, as I said, I tried many different things. You know, there was many different things going on in those days and there was many different Buddhism. But I think why I ended up where I ended up, it's because it was the only place I could have done it. Definitely. Any other places, I would have found difficulty with it. So I think it's more, I found it, and it, in a way, it found me. So I think it's more that, in terms of why I choose that one. Yes? What happens tomorrow? Yes, sure. So tomorrow morning, we're going to get up. I mean, we're going to turn right now. Soon, we're going to turn the, the schedule. And so what's going to happen tomorrow for first 30, uh, we'll sit 30 minutes in the early morning instead of 45 because at um, quarter past seven, there will be the manager's talks. So everybody, please be there for that. They will explain various things also for traveling and things like that. Then at uh, 7, 35, 40, there will be breakfast and the silence will be broken. So you can speak and share, which is a very nice time. Then there will be work period. Then there will be cleaning period. And then we will reconvene at 10. Then 10 to 10.30, we'll do the meditation. Then 10.30 to 11, we'll have the concluding remarks. And then 11 to 11.30, 12, we'll have the sharing, going around, talking with each other. And then at 12, you can look at the library and there will be book sale. And then 12.30, there will be lunch. And again, everybody are free to talk and everything. And then after lunch, generally, people go if uh, they have to go. So that's what's going to happen tomorrow. Yes? I know you shouldn't compare, but thinking about 
a huge amount that you understand and have sort of managed to get through and got clear with. And I can imagine I'll be amongst the brambles and forever. And I just think, who's saying that the sort of possibility of just the feeling of weight of discouragement sometimes? Yeah, first, 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 I think personally there is no difference between anybody. I mean, of course, I, as my teacher used to say, somebody once asked him, you know, what's the difference between you and me? Uh, it was just somebody passing by. And Master Cousin said, well, we're on the same train. Possibly I am a little at the front of the train now. You may be possibly a little at the back of the train, but you're on the same train. And I thought, yes, that's a nice answer. But I personally would say even better that... Again, it's back. We have to be, it's back, back, back to what the difference I make between cultivation and effect. The cultivation of the meditation will never be like you hope it to be. That I can assure you. Because you, we generally have a conception of meditation, of which is relatively abstract. And for the Zen people, I would say one of the most dangerous books is by Roshi Kaplow, The Three Pillars of Zen. Don't read this book. <laughs> ah, but then you're totally disheartened. You know, you have a middle passage. You have uh, endless people having uh, awakening experience. And you think, well, you know, how come I don't have one of those? <laughs> so I think, in a way, these things are for inspiration. They're not for comparison. I think everybody is different. Why did I become a nun? I became a nun actually because I had nothing better to do there and then. And I thought, why not? This is maybe a good idea. So you see, everybody has different condition. You see, I, I mean, I used to sit in Korea, and the nuns were very impressed with me. Because all the Korean nuns were, and I was. And so they said, wow, you're amazing. You never sleep on the cushion. I said, I can't sleep. I have too many thoughts. <laughs> so I think it's very important that, to me, what I like about, in a way, teaching the retreat is that he generally, generally, it is effective. And that generally people will tell me, I go home and I am different with my daughter. Instead of reacting immediately, and I can you know, try to be more stable, more open, and try to be a little more creative. You know. And of course, they tell me, oh, it lasts you know, up to six months. And then after you, the effects, according to condition, goes down. <laughs> then you come for another retreat. But I think we, we, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. It's not about understanding. I had a friend. I had a friend who had amazing experience of meditation. He was extremely learned. I mean, I learned a lot from him in terms of the sutra. He knew much more than me about the sutras. He had, had many more meditative experience than I will ever have in my life. On top of it, he did all kinds of psychological stuff, which, again, I will never do. I've not had the time to do. And he was a sociopath. He was really, really difficult to live with. And we used to think, but how would he, how would he be if he had not done the study, the meditation, and the therapy. So I think we have to be careful, you know? You could have somebody who has never done any meditation, never done any study, never done any, any therapy, and actually could be a wonderful, wise, compassionate person. So I think we have to be very careful with that. I think it's not a question or meditative state. It's not a question of understanding. It's more a question, to me, it's really what it is about, a question of de-grasping, you know? And some of us might 
in certain circumstances, they grasp more easily than others. I know for myself, I know I have studied a lot, I mean, studied some, practiced a lot, but you should have seen me in the dentist a week ago. You would not have believed I was a Zen meditation teacher. <laughs> I, w- I could not recognize it, recognize myself. I was, ah! it was very interesting. <laughs> the dentist had this effect on me. The Zen goes out of the window. I'm trying to see. I was, it was very funny, very funny. So I think all of us, in a way, have to be humble. And at the same time, all of us have to have confidence within ourselves. I think this is what is very important. All of us have riches. All of us have capacity. All of us are wise and compassionate. And in a way, the meditation is to help us to be able to be possibly more so. But I think it's very important to see that. Okay, and I think we'll have to stop here because uh, now we have to do a little walking.